Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Three, two, one. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. It's bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show, and uh, it is Friday, August 30th, 2019. Uh, that's the day we're taping this, and this is the day after Lori Lightfoot made her great budget speech. I'm sorry, State of the City speech. I'm sorry, her first 100-day speech. Whatever it was, she made her speech last night, and uh, I've convened a panel of very smart people uh, to talk about the speech, to put it in the proper context, to talk about all the uh perspective ways in which Lori Lightfoot may raise the money she says she needs to raise to pay the bills she says she needs to pay to run the government that we all uh, want to see uh, run efficiently uh, and taking care of everybody and that includes a casino it includes what I uh, like to call the reefer tax a tax on the sale of marijuana uh, raising the property tax perhaps and maybe some taxes uh, that Lori Lightfoot hasn't discussed uh, doing some uh, this more... little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine I <laughs> uh, yes that Lori Lightfoot anyway progressive taxes and we'll also maybe do a little tiff talk tiff uh, one of my favorite topics so we're gonna be talking about uh, Lori Lightfoot's budget and some of the uh, issues and challenges facing the city of Chicago the financial issues and challenges facing the city of Chicago with this distinguished panel and I'm gonna ask as we always do our panel members to identify themselves and I'm gonna start with this panel member okay I'm Anton Seals Jr., community brother at Lodge, at the Lodge, Inglewood uh, and South Shore. So I do a lot of work in those two particular communities. I'm the lead steward of Grow Greater Inglewood and uh, co-convener of South Shore Works. Very good. Hi, Andy Kang, executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice Chicago, and uh, I was co-chair of uh, Mayor Lightfoot's uh, transition committee on good governance. Wow. Okay. Nikita Brar, I'm the executive director and uh, co-founder of Chicago United for Equity and the local school council member at National Teachers Academy. All right, very good. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, I'm going to start uh, with you, Andy, because uh, you were on a transition uh, team for uh, Mayor Lightfoot. What what did you call it? Ethics? Well, it, actually, we all three of us were. You're all in the yeah, ethics. Yeah, I forgot about Anton that. Anton was, oh, on, envir- it, he was on environment. He was on environment. Nikita was on education. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could start with any of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only one who admitted that he was I mean, on the, thank uh, you, but yeah. I do want to be known that I was on her transition team. Because you know what they generally say? Say about trans. I want to throw this one out there. What they generally say about a trans. And don't be offended. What I'm about to say. But you never put somebody on a transition team that would co- later cause you trouble. Well, they may have made a mistake <laughs> on that one, Ben. <laughs> oh man, they picked the wrong people to put on the transition team. They All sure right. did. They sure did. All right. Uh, well, then let's just start with this. Then uh, we'll start with since I already picked you anyway. Anyway, Andy, I could have used any of you for this one. Uh, so, were you pleased with what you heard from Lori Lightfoot? Were you disappointed with what you heard from Lori Lightfoot? What was your reaction? Uh, you know, I think I was okay. Uh, it wasn't um, wasn't everything I was hoping to hear. Uh, you know, I was hoping that the mayor would make uh, a deeper uh, historical case for some of the sacrifices that I, I hope um, those that are doing well in our city, some of the corporations that have done very well for themselves over the last decade or even longer, uh, the sacrifices that we're going to be asking of them with progressive revenue ideas, uh, and especially making the case, and Anton, Nikita, and I have had these conversations before about uh, the racial oppression, uh, the intentional city policies, right, that have led to us being in the situation that we are uh, in, in now as a city around the south and west sides in particular. Anti, what do you think the historical case would have been if she were to make it? If she were to make? If she were to have followed uh, Andy's advice and made more of a... Uh, okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yes, I co-chaired um, Lori's uh, Environmental Transition Committee. Um, however, I did not vote for Lori Lightfoot. Um, so I was not in the light. 
I was very clear. I'm straight up. Great time sense. out. And in either uh, in the first one and the and in the second round, you didn't vote for either time. No. So I'm just to be clear. I mean, so I'm being fair. I'm being a straight. I'm a straight shooter. Um, and I would say that you know. By her getting the job, and part of why people wanted to be in the light, it was that they were afraid that uh, her opponent would just continue to kind of brush things under the rug, and in, in a way that I think um, the current mayor, uh, you know, my new nickname for her is Double L, like Mayor Double L. So mm-hmm. the Lori Lightfoot had to, you know, come out, and I think, I, I think ultimately her. Paradoxes is that in, within her administration, she has two forces. She has a progressive force that's there that um, is trying to pull her in one direction, and then she's got the status quo, or those who are like the you know stakeholders, the main stakeholders of Chicago, which is you know managing government. So governance is different than you know just politics in and of itself. So you know you're dealing with a city that is shrinking that is in competition with other cities across the country. So, you know, making this place attractive for more people to come and stay is going to be her, her big work. So I think she, um, I agree with Andy. I mean, I think, you know, some of, I mean, I, I guess it's just in terms of, from my, it, I don't have these large expectations of Lori Life. I didn't see her as kind of some progressive champion. You know, I just didn't buy that, you know what I mean? So. And I'm, you know, just I'm, so you can't was, be disappointed. If you I never can't be disappointed. You know, the, the it wasn't that. You know what I mean? I expected her to go in there with, you know, that she was going to have to be pushed around some of these issues that she would maybe be middle of the road on. I mean, that's just been her record. So I can only go off of like what you've been doing beforehand. So I don't expect you to like overnight become a darling <laughs> of things that, yeah, you know what I mean. That yeah. I hold. You, you know, I think you acknowledge, and she. I think her approach has been different. She's listening, right? Which we haven't had a mayor that I think people felt was actually hearing whether, you know, and trying to digest it. And, you know, I think the hundred days is bullshit. So it's like a hundred days. Okay. <laughs> what are you going to really do in a hundred days? I mean, like, what is this imaginary? Like you get to go back to Oz in a hundred days kind of thing. Like what? Okay. Yeah. So I think it's kind of like also unfair in a way to say like, you know, where she should be in a hundred days, just, is um you know a little you know to me feels premature. It's like so I think now she's assessed the situation, and that eight thirty eight is a big number. Yeah. Um. So I mean that, that's where I land on it. Eight thirty eight million being the amount she says the yeah, city's right. facing as a deficit. Nikita. Yeah, I mean I I think that makes a ton of sense to me, right? Like this idea that we're talking about, um, you know, when we when we prosper, we talk about shared prosperity. We don't really talk about the disproportionality with who really got that prosperity. And now we're talking about shared pain and shared pain being like, oh, we're all equally going to feel some pain, which is like a historically divorced concept because it doesn't talk about who's been bearing the the pain, the burden of the past. Right. We we have come off of an administration that has implications far into the future. Rom being out of office is not, you know, the end of the Rom legacy. And I think part of what I was hoping to hear, and I I get it, right? You don't want to talk about the last guy. But what I was hoping to hear was a little bit more historical context. Like, look, we're going to share the pain equitably. What that means is, yeah, we're not all going to raise our property taxes in all parts of the city because let's be real, who's been bearing the pain of a corrupt property tax scheme, right? Or who's been bearing the pain of corruption at base? One of the things that I think is so interesting about the Lightfoot campaign, mm-hmm. this idea of bringing the light, right? It's so attractive and it's it's fascinating because if you look at her vote totals, and where they came from, there was all this critique of the fact that she had, you know, liberal lakefront liberals on both the north side, the south side. Like we had lakefront folks um, voting for her, and I find that really so. A, that's true. But when you look at what happened in the second round, it was the same people that vote 
for Rom. It was the same people who vote for Daly, right? Who came out from the northwest side and the southwest side to vote in disproportionality to the rest of the city. And so my greatest concern is when we talk about sharing the pain, how are you going to share the pain if you know that your vote totals are coming from places that don't want to share in a in an equitable way acknowledging that they have been benefiting disproportionately from the history of the city um, and so to Andy's point to Anton's point I didn't hear anything that really spoke to that past and what I worry about is if we go into this budget season saying now I'm going to listen to everybody who is everybody and who's going to show up in those spaces who's going to feel heard in those spaces and are we going to actually say look um just because you have an equal vote on election day doesn't mean that you have you should have just an equal amount of voice. We should actually be amplifying the voices of people who have been ignored and historically subject to exclusionary policies. And I didn't hear how that strategy was coming into play. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, you've, there's a lot of things all three of you have raised uh, that I find fascinating. But that last one was really good. Sharing the pain versus sharing the prosperity. I never thought about it in those terms. I have to confess. Think about that. Nobody talked about sharing the prosperity uh, when times were good and people were making a lot of money in the city of Chicago. But now the time, we got to share the pain. You know what I'm saying? Uh, when I think of all the money that was been poured into the central business district to pr- make prosperity, but nobody, nobody really shared with that, I suppose, uh, but uh, now we're going to have to all share the pain. All right. Um, well, I think, but I mean, socialism I, for the rich. Go ahead. I Anton. think that I mean this notion of shared pain, and sh- you know, this is goes at the heart of equity, right? Mm-hmm. It's it, it's not uh, equality, right? It's two different concepts, and I think people have a hard time explaining like, those concepts. Well, I mean, using the party, you know, the shared pain and shared, um, you know, um, prosperity. You know, if you're having a party and you're not fucking inviting half of the other city, then when it's time, I mean, time when the, the chips are down, now you want me to cough up and be like, oh, you missed the party, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so this is at the core of when we talk about <laughs> racial equity, like, oops, we, we sorry, you missed the party, but guess what? It costs $10 extra now. And, you know, for some people in this city, I think, and in particular people, you know, I work in community, I've worked in community in my entire life, you know, I'm from the South Side, but I'm a city kid, you know, I went to school. all. I mean, part of this is, you know, I just have to call bullshit on it. So it's like when we talk about white privilege and white male, part of it is to be able to ignore that the fact that you're sharing, that you ain't sharing in the prosperity at all. Right. When you look at the room and it's like this is the way the culture is built around. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that would be from the private end. And it's always like, well, we want to move government out of the way. Those people who, who then see government as, as an obstruction to, you know, more efficiency has been the, the case for the last, I don't know, 50 years since post, uh, you know, Richard Nixon assumes office. And so for many of us, we have an analysis that this was, a you know, like the reconstruction of our modern era. It's like you made all these moves up until 68, 68, then you have a concerted effort through policy, right, at the national level, at the state level, to then do these kind of austerity politics, right? So you get rid of welfare, you penalize people. And at the, you have the war on drugs, right? I mean, I could go down the list, right? And so, you know, I speak with a lot of fervor about it because, you know, I've lost motherfucking people off of this shit. But people are acting like, well, I don't know what the hell, like it's not an analysis for me, it's like, this is life. And so I think where we're coming towards in, in this country and in the city is that we have to have a reckoning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what, you know, the grab we're grabbing. And just to piggyback on that, you know, a lot of the Lightfoot supporters, right, they like to be on Team Lightfoot and be very anti-corruption, anti-machine, and that's great, right? I think most of us are saying, yeah, let's break the machine. But it can't stop there, right? You can't just say, oh, the machine's broken, we're good now, right? The harm has not been addressed. Uh, The decades of neglect, disinvestment, intentional policies to really screw certain neighborhoods, that has to be undone too. And so we've been talking a lot about this, about good government being anti-racist, right? That you have to proactively uh, implement policies that are gonna really help heal some of the harm that, and it's not gonna happen overnight, but uh, my hope is that uh, the mayor could, you know, make some of that argument. And uh, if these folks, 
feel like they're on her team and they want to be with her and they want to, you know, fix the city and, and bring in the light that they understand part of bringing in the light is racial healing and, and doing these steps that are, you know, I've never seen them in Chicago. And so, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's fundamentally shifting the frame of the speech, right? Because the frame of the speech was, look, if we make government less corrupt, the people will want to support Chicago and I, I let's let's share the pain together because we're building the city together which is a it absolves responsibility for the harm that's right it lacks it lacks the naming of the harm itself right you can't even talk about reparations if you're not talking about the harm that you caused not you as an individual right I'm talking about the government systems and structures if we don't start with naming those um, systems and st structures have caused this harm. And then we go to this concept of eradicating government corruption. It's like, I, it's fundamentally so broken to me because when I look at who gets behind this message of fixing government corruption, disproportionately, they're actually not the folks who are bearing the burden of corruption, Absolutely. right? And that's not to say, that's not to say I don't bear the burden of corruption personally, Right. But that's not to say that I don't care about that. It just means that I need to be acknowledging the fact that when I talk about fixing corruption, that that means that that doesn't necessarily mean that um, I'm going to get a payout from that. Yeah. Uh, and all right, we're, I don't want to go too far afield with uh, corruption, but you guys keep saying things that, that, that stir stuff in my head. Uh, I, I mean, there's corruption and there's corruption, okay? So like Ed Burke uh, overseeing every single contract and every single, uh, all, every budget and every TIF deal while representing property owners who are benefiting from these deals is blanket corruption. But... Uh, when they talk about getting rid of the machine and that gets and you're cutting city jobs, I don't see that as part of a great fight for corruption. This is where I'm very sympathetic to old machine guys that got me in trouble with my liberal friends and my lefty friends because I've never felt that it was such a great thing for the city of Chicago to say to privatize water department workers. Water department workers who work for the city of Chicago got a pretty good salary, got health benefits, got a pension, and lived like in Englewood and Woodlawn and supported their community. So how is that? They that's called good government and anti-machine. And I'm like, how is that helping anybody at all in the city of Chicago? So why should I support that? Okay, so I feel very passionate about this issue because I went to school to I went to a school. Um, I went to grad school for public policy, which is a training program for mostly to go work for government, right? The problem is that people don't hire in government anymore. And the reason for it is because they don't want to pay for your pension. They don't want to pay for your health care. So they privatize that and turn to consultants to fix those problems. Consultants who are flown in, consultants who don't have a historical context, consultants that aren't accountable to the community because they don't live there, right? And as a result, we, we, we believe that now we're privatizing this. Look, we're saving money. We're saving money, and your taxpayer dollars are being used more efficiently. What you find when you actually take a look at the solutions that are being created here, they are not necessarily more efficient with our tax dollars. Um, what they do is they, they actually just create an illusion on your budget mm -hmm. because you don't see the pension costs, you don't see the health care costs, those went to zero. But what you don't see is that you have a basically a very time-limited um, flown-in level of expertise that's fairly shallow. Mm -hmm. um, so an example of this, for example, this, this drove me up a wall. So I used to work in city government, had to fingerprint scan my fingers, okay? Chicago city government? Chicago city government. I used to work at the city treasurer's office. Scan my fingerprints every day. And I, before I worked for the city government, after I worked for the city government, I work crazy hours, normally work 10-hour days. And that's just, a, that's just who I am. I love to do work for the people of Chicago. When I worked for city government, it was the most depressing experience of my life because I was pregnant at the time and I had to get out to the one free maternal health workshop that existed for that period of time when I was pregnant. And it was in Hyde Park. To get from downtown to Hyde Park on public transit, I had to leave at 4.15. So I used to come in extra early in the morning to make sure that I was still working an eight-hour day and then scan my fingerprints out, go all the way down, and then go home, pick up my laptop, and start working at night. 
And I got yelled at and I was told that I would be terminated if I continued to do this because I had to work until 4.30 and it was a corrupt, that I was partaking in a corrupt practice. And by doing this, you know, I was perpetuating the lack of faith that taxpayers have in the workers of Chicago. So I didn't work for city government very long after that. <laughs> and, uh, and you can imagine, right? Um, and part of the reason why is because I can't work in a place that doesn't see me as a full human. And that's what we've been doing as we privatize our services, right? As we push out pensions, as we push out healthcare, we push out all these external costs that we think people don't want to pay for. I'm a taxpayer in Chicago. I want to pay for a city worker who's going to work their ass off. And if that worker needs an hour mm -hmm. to go to maternal health care or needs some time to take care of their family member or needs something that doesn't fit into a consultant practice or a fingerprint scanning system, I'm, I'm going to give them that to make sure that they're taking care of our city. And Todd, do you think it's reform when you fire city workers? No. I, <laughs> I, I mean, again, I, I'll go back to like being, you know, the, the, a guy here around the context because you have to think about in terms of, you know, who in fact were working city government jobs, you know what I mean? So again, if we use the civil rights, you know, era as a benchmark, right? And so just talking to, you know, I'm an organizer, a, a grandson of an organizer, right? So my grandmother was part of the True Squad mothers that fought to desegregate Chicago public schools, the, Wils the Willis wagons, you know, there were great stories. She went to jail, the whole, grandmother's from Grenada, Mississippi, came up here in 19, what, 39, 1940. Right. Black people just got access to these jobs in the 60s. You know, then you get to the 80s and this is where the trimming starts that now. So it's about this narrative. Right. Where it's like it's, it's too bloated and essentially it's a lie. Right. So if you look at every public sector since the 80s, since basically and people always say, why well, we go back to here Washington, because post here Washington is when you start to see this kind of, you know, Beginning, well, one, you study the beginning of the TIF, right, which was supposed to have this other purpose, but then you see the destruction of public housing, the destruction of public education, right? These, it goes to Nikita's point of like, you're getting people who are being flown in with recommendation, national recommendations, right? And so the, the, at that time, you can go back in this tract, you know, the, the argument was that it would be more efficient and cost, more cost efficient to have this, you know, privatized. So we get to the point where we just, you know, which we now are famous for, we sell all of our parking <laughs> meters, right? And so there's one part about that, you know, around, you know, and then if you peel the onion back, so Chicago is definitely the wild onion. So you peel that funky layer back. <laughs> and then you see all the people who are part of the privatization, all worked for the city government at one point. Mm -hmm. Are all interconnected. So, like, you know, who's zooming who? <laughs> you know, as Aretha Franklin famously says, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the uh, what Lori talked about the other day is that people fundamentally in certain communities, we have zero faith in what government is going to do, mm -hmm. right? I, and I think that gradation spans across the city based on your experience. So I don't think that the brunt of, you know, trying to make and then people who do work for those city governments and that now the case is that you may have one or two people who are supposed to, like, cover the entire city for a particular program. Mm -hmm. So it takes seven years to do a project. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or I mean, so there is this real it doesn't take away the tension of us in community trying to fight for source resources to come in. But then you get into the, 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 the inner workings of the government and they don't even have enough to do what they need to do. Right. So you, you, you have a, a, a perfect storm because what she's saying is that she had the freeze hiring. You know, so, so some of this stuff is like, how are you going to be able to do this unless you bring in some other experts? And usually those experts are absolved from any kind of accountability because they don't have any names. You don't know how these things are. These things are happening in the in the bowels of city government. These are contractual workers. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It's, it's nothing. It, I'm not saying that they're all nefarious or something, but. It's the notion of that we yes. don't have good public servants besides just your elected officials. So I think that's really important well, to highlight. And, and to your point, Anton, there's not accountability for them, right? Because accountability comes from this, from journalists being able to look you up, right? It comes from your community activists being able to say, okay, that's who works there under whom. And 
the the point again it's not that these are bad actors um that's not it at all it's more that some of them them might be right but i don't want to absolve everybody (laughs) but the bigger issue is if we don't know who those people are how they're working how much they're getting paid right or are they getting paid at all and if they're not getting paid on paper they're getting paid in some other way and do you have something you want to add? To yeah, that? you know, I just want to say uh, to Anton's earlier point about different camps being in the on the fifth floor with the mayor. Uh, I've had some really amazing interactions with some of her staff, uh, who I think are, are are quite strong, and and I think are, um, you know, if you have a conversation with them for any length of time, you know, they're very earnest in trying to address these issues. Yes. I, but I think to, to Anton's other point about being under resourced, you know. Um, I think it's great that the mayor set up an office of racial equity and racial justice. I, I know that uh, Nikita has a lot to say on that, but it's one person, right? And uh, when we look at things like, uh, you know, outside consultants, uh, it's great that they got a uh, analysis of uh, the casino, but they didn't do a racial equity analysis. And and you know. Uh, it's not can't it just can't be about profit right? right it has to be a deeper analysis about how do these things with these mega developments whether we're talking to 78 and my concerns about its impact on pilsen and chinatown in particular or you know the lincoln yards with this lawsuit we need a racial equity analysis of these huge projects just because rom slammed it through in the last second doesn't mean it's a done deal uh clearly it's not you talk about the lincoln yards lincoln deal. yards right. right and so you know i think we need to we need to dive deeper in that all right let's uh before we get to the tiffs which i could talk about all day uh we'll do the casino thing uh, d can you kick up uh, Lori on casinos. Everybody got their headphones on. This is uh, Mayor Lightfoot last night uh, in her public address and her speech uh, on the issue of casinos. He's looking for it. Uh, I find this a fascinating one. This is one of, this is a classic moment uh, where citizens have to learn to read between the lines of what uh, their public <laughs> officials are saying rather than literally believe what their public officials have been. I've been studying Chicago politicians for a very long time, so I've become pretty good at reading between the lines of Chicago politicians. I think you should be a translator. I am a translator. <laughs> I think as it plays, you should say what is really oh, yeah. being said here. I can't yeah. 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 Instant yeah. translation. Exactly. <laughs> what was that movie called? Oh, was it The Interpreter? Remember where it was the lady uh, at the United Nations, and she was an interpreter, and she overheard a murder thing. Does every guys are looking at me like I'm crazy? No. <laughs> uh, but it was uh, Naomi Watts, maybe the lady. All right, you ready to go, D? Here we go. All right. We are pursuing a Chicago casino that creates a dedicated revenue stream to pay for our pension costs. If we get the tax structure right. This will represent a structural solution to address long-term problems, not a one-time fix. Not only that, it will also create thousands of jobs, help fund the state's capital plan, and stop the flow of over $200 million in gaming revenue to Indiana. As an independent study made clear, Chicago and Springfield will need to work together to get the tax structure right in order order to move this plan forward. Getting it right represents a win for both the city and our state, and there's no reason why we can't arrive at a solution. But we have to be honest with ourselves. If such an agreement isn't made, if we don't secure this casino and the revenue that it creates, we will then be forced to make painful choices on finding other revenue sources. And we all know what those are, the sources we desperately wish to avoid. Okay, man, I don't, I, I could go on and on. I know what I feel about what she said. Uh, there, uh, I, I always love what politicians say. We got to be honest. Uh oh, because something honest is not happening. <laughs> Where do I start? Uh, when she opens with the, we got the tax structure right. Essentially, what she's saying is the setup that we have under the law uh, is not going working for the people who would operate the casinos. That's that's the complaint. Remember that? that? That was the initial complaint came from the casino operators in this study that you, one of you, I can't remember which alluded to, mm-hmm. said there was a study and that uh, the, ta- the operators of the casinos said they couldn't make enough money out of the city of Chicago, so they're not going to invest in it. So she's saying we have to, to change the tax structure. In other words, we have to make it more beneficial to the operators of the casino, at which point I say, I don't care about the operators of the casino. The only reason I would have a casino in the first place is to raise money for the city of Chicago. 
Chicago. If you're telling me that I have to give up more money to the city of Chicago not to help the schools or to help the streets or help the police or the firefighters, but I have to give it to the operators of the casino, I don't want that. I would rather pursue a strategy of getting that, cutting the deal with Indiana and just getting more of their money. I would rather pursue a deal where we just take some of the money out of the Hammond Casino. I'd rather cut a deal with the city of Hammond or the state of those Hoosiers than give more money to a casino operator. That's how I view it. Anton, if you disagree with me, Andy, if you disagree with me, feel free to give it at me with both blasts. Go. No, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, look, look, well, I don't. Well, look, look. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say two things. One, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work uh, researching on casinos. I have yet to see a study that shows um, when you talk about all the total associated costs uh, around a casino, uh, a, a significant net economic benefit. Right. It's a regressive tax. God bless Chewy. When he ran, he was against it. Uh, I think Amaro was the only candidate that came out against it uh, as a regressive tax last time ago. So that's one. Uh, haven't seen it. Uh, the, all the studies I've seen that sh- show casinos are so great for cities, they're usually funded by the gaming industry. Right. And the house always wins. Casino folks are very Absolutely. smart. Right. Uh, if it's a good deal for them, it's a bad deal for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Second is for my community. Uh, I know in the Asian American community, we have the highest gambling addiction rates uh, of any community. Uh, This is not just a regressive tax. This is a regressive tax that will target low-income Asian Americans. Uh, I talked to leaders around uh, the country in different cities. Uh, The folks in Philly fought twice uh, a a Philly casino in the city. Um, You know, they're all telling me, don't let it happen. Mm -hmm. Don't let it come into the city. Um, You know, maybe there's some magical plan that they have in mind that only targets uh, wealthy tourists, but I have not seen that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I don't know another city that I've seen that uh, when I look at Detroit or any of the other uh, examples. And so uh, on this one, I have to say, I, I fundamentally disagree with the mayor's office on it. Oh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you guys too. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just joking. Um, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, no. When I heard her say that, I was like, damn, that's a gamble. That's a real gamble that you need to, like, this is where we are. I mean, if you think about it, this is where we are as a society. We have to tax a casino to get government revenue. No, we have to cut the take we're going to take from a casino to get the casino operator to agree to come into our city and take more from people who can't afford to give it in the first place. (laughs) A gamble. It's an extraction model is what I'm, you know, my point. So I have a question. Okay. Um, There's this whole notion about the casino. The, The premise of the casino is like, look. It's money that's already being spent. We're we're just going to capture some of it. It won't hurt any of our own people, and it'll just benefit our people. And there's only one place in the city of Chicago that I can think of where you would put something that doesn't hurt the people of Chicago, and that's the airport. Yeah. That's the only place that I can think of, right? That it wouldn't, and, and I'm saying like, I'm not even saying like at the airport with like access for people who live in the city. Like, no, the only place is between, basically when you're already past the checkpoint and then we got flyers coming in from all over the country. They're already wealthy enough to afford a plane ticket. <laughs> yeah. They want to go gamble between flights. I'm okay with that. But that's about the only place yeah. in the city of Chicago where you're not actually just creating a regressive tax on Chicagoans. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, and I'll just point this out for past mayoral candidates, uh, Andy's good friend, Gary, Big Mac McCarthy, just kidding. Andy, uh, what actually, uh, came out with an idea for putting a, a slot machines. I think it was, I think it was Gary, Big Mac McCarthy at the airport. So I'm going to, when he said, I was like, you know what? I, but I, 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 but I mean, come on, man. Like you, you go to Vegas. Like, are you stopping at the slot machine at the airport? No, because Vegas is this huge and, industry outside. Yeah. So, I mean, like, it's not part of the Chicago, like, I'm going to stop and go gamble. No. It's like, but, I mean, I, I get it. You know what I mean? I get it. But I guess fundamentally what I'm saying is, like, I agree this is a kind of a, you know, if you're trying to close some <laughs> budget deficits, I just think that, you know, the casino is not going to get you to where, you know, it's not going to generate the revenue, number one. And it will have an adverse impact on the people who you're trying to protect the most. All right. Help me out, all three of you. I don't care who answers this one first. I'd love to hear all three of your thoughts on this. So there are two 
uh, vice taxes out there. That's what we call them, vice taxes, because there's stuff you shouldn't be doing, vices, but everybody knows you're going to do it, so you're going to tax it and raise money to pay for things you think you want. One is casinos. The other is reefer, marijuana. My generation reefer. Okay. So I don't understand. Please help me understand this. When they had the marijuana bill, there was all this opposition in the state house it ultimately passed but people were like banging their breasts and like oh my god what am i gonna do i i don't understand if i should have let this pass marijuana blah 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 okay the gambling bill passed in like two hours at the end of the session nobody read it and now we all of a sudden realize there's an 800 page bill the operators say they can't make enough money out of which i don't believe by the way but whatever you can't make enough money in gambling because you said the whole thing is set up for so you do it why is there so much opposition to legalizing marijuana and so little opposition to promoting gambling please someone explain that to me well ben I should say when under Quinn, when I worked down in Springfield, I wrote some of those gambling bills that tried to create a Chicago casino. Uh, and so a lot of the negotiations, this has been going on for years, right? Like what the racetracks want, what uh, different suburban areas want. Uh, this is a very uh, familiar negotiating landscape uh, for a lot of the stakeholders, right? So that's one. Um, but I'd also say this is a kind of a blind spot for progressives, right? A lot of us don't uh, I didn't hear a lot of progressive groups during Springfield, uh, during the spring session, uh, raising a stink about gambling, right? Uh, it was all about, and, and you know, look, legalizing cannabis, long overdue, right? Uh, there's a criminal justice component. Uh, there, there's a lot of good reasons for that. Um, but with, with the gambling, you just didn't hear anybody step up and say, wait a second, is this even a good idea, right? Uh, is the market saturated? The regressive tax you know, issues that we're talking about right now, it's a blind spot for progressives. And it, I think it's you know, one of the reasons they're cash starved and they're desperate and there isn't a constituency that objected. So it was full steam ahead. Um, you know, I, I think they're two different, completely different vices for sure. I mean, we have a state run casino called the lottery <laughs> so i mean and if you get to the historical context if you go on the south side of chicago that was the 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 underbelly of our economy and what is now known as bronzeville but the black belt you know so people who came up from louisiana mississippi this was the 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 quote-unquote racket that black people had here before the mob picked their pockets and the mob then becomes the government just to be clear I mean, their children, uh, you know, ascending to seats, um, those networks of the, you know, those new immigrants who come, the Irish, the Germans who come later than your, you know, your Yankees, right, who are coming from upstate New York or whatever to the, the expansion of the West of the Americas, right? So I think that from some, you know, that, that that's one piece. And then when you think about cannabis, you know, it was criminalized intentionally because it was targeting, you know, there's a there's a great documentary you should watch called The Grass is Greener with Five Five Freddy. He talks about it and he traces it back to the history of it becoming and, and one person in the FBI, right? And this is how powerful government goes back in terms of creating a narrative that one, the reason we even call it marijuana is because it was anti-Mexican, Right. And the other became a continuation of Jim Crow laws in northern states where you could stop me. Right. And this has gone on until today. Right. But if you smelled weed on someone, it was probable cause for an officer then to pull you over. Right. And to detain you. And who were they detaining? Well, we know the numbers. Right. That, you know, <laughs> they're out of this world. Right, so I'm a 45-year-old black man from the hip-hop generation. Do you think that they were tagging us if they smell weed? Or I, even if you weren't, it's like, you, I smell weed. Mm -hmm. You could be from the most pristine household on the south side of Chicago. It didn't matter. Because in their minds, you know, it becomes a way to introduce you into the and what we now call the prison industrial complex. But for some of us, it's like the continuation of slave catching. Here goes another thing to just detain you. And if you fight back, I'm gonna put some other charges on you. So it has a really deep, you know, and so that, I think like every time we, I keep coming back to this because there's this disconnect because as Dr. King talked about it, Harold talked about in our city and in this particular city, because we're so get segregated, people are having completely different experiences. So people are hearing things and living things completely different. 
and I don't think that everyone has an understanding of shared prosperity. <laughs> like, they don't think anything is wrong. Like, what is wrong with growing? Like, I've worked hard for this, right? That That's the whole piece of why you have to have this narrative that Chicago's so violent. Like, look what they're doing over here. They're uneducated. It's a continuation is, is the point. So these two vices, I think, are t- completely different, right? Um, and I, I'm glad that they have legalized cannabis, even though the bill fell way short. We had to push, you know, I did a lot of work to advocate that we in- increase the social equity in it. But even that, you got everyone saying dropping social equity like it's, you know, you know, penny candy. <laughs> you know, I'm getting my social equity, like a little dash of social equity <laughs> on your food. You know what I mean? Like, I got that. And it's missing, like, they don't have a racial equity analysis. They don't know what the, the, it's not steeped in history. So the, the industry is 99% white men right now. Yeah. Who are making millions. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, again, you know, and so what we're talking about is capitalism (laughs) that is, you know, continue to do what it does best, which is extraction, right? And so it makes you no longer a human, you're just another widget. Yeah. And so I think that's part of like that question you're asking. Like, and and Mm -hmm. casino is something that's just much more seen as part of like, you know, it, it's it's a different vice. You know what I mean? I, I think so. I think people view it completely different because no one's going to judge you if you go play the lottery. You can go to church and go play the lottery. <laughs> and people won't be like, why are you playing the lottery? Yeah. Now, now that may change because people go to church and go have a drink. Or smoke right. a joint. Well, no, if you smoke joint or do drugs, it yeah. was deemed, you know, a little bit, you know, out, you know, you're out of the, the realm of like you shouldn't, you're using something, right, that that is inducing something. Yeah. But I, we're not going to go into the no, whole listen, we can Anglo- the whole, <laughs> a whole show. I've watched every marijuana movie in the world, okay? Oh, wow. It's one of my favorite subgenres of movies. Oh, cool. Okay, I love reefer movies. With I reefer? Can, uh, well, no, I've not smoked reefer <laughs> since 1980. Or was it 81? I can't remember because I was high at the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. I always use that joke. That has heard it a million times. But um, uh, I, I love marijuana movies. I just love reefer movies, stoner movies. Uh, I could do a whole list of what I think are the greatest stoner movies of all time. Uh, and so I... Wait, what's at the top of the list? Yeah. I need to know uh, <laughs> I would have to say um, Big Lebowski is my favorite stoner movie of all. Have you ever seen a Big Lebowski? Yes, I saw Big Lebowski? Big Lebowski, great stoner movie. And uh, Friday, you know, the Chris uh, Tucker. Friday. Yeah, yeah. that's got to be number two. Um, number three stoner movie of all time. Dig, help me out here. What's number three? Uh, you talk about Cheech and Chong a lot. Oh, my God. I love Cheech and Chong. I love Cheech and Chong, man. Tommy Chong. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, uh, whatever. I went on a tangent within a tangent. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> That's our Ben. <laughs> no, I, I love reefer movies. And the, the hypocrisy, I've just said this so many times, the utter freaking hypocrisy of this country when it comes to marijuana is just astounding. Everybody goes to marijuana movies. Everybody loves marijuana movies. Everybody smokes marijuana or is in a room with marijuana. And then I remember in 2011, I couldn't find a politician when they go on the record. When Mick Dunkey and I started writing those marijuana stories, they wouldn't even go on the record. And now I look at them all. They're all like, oh, marijuana. And they're all like trying to get their little marijuana licenses so they can sell the stuff. I'm like, I never thought marijuana should be legalized uh, to, for raising money. I never thought that was a legitimate reason to uh, legalize marijuana because I always felt as though it wouldn't raise as much money as they say it's going to raise. Probably because, same gambling thing, get your thoughts on this. To induce somebody to go into the marijuana business, you got to give them a big cut of the chunk of the change. So we're not going to get that much money. What's your thoughts on that one right there? Well, look, Ben, I think the concern here is the mayor didn't talk about any progressive revenue ideas. All right, let's right, get this right, drop right, marijuana. Let's get right. That's I mean, a good you know, look, Andy. You, people could be smoking up, you know, 24-7. That's not going to close the, the That's not going to close the budget. I mean, but it, it, but it would make them feel better. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we may still have a budget deficit, yeah. but people will be uh, feeling, uh, feeling all right. Yeah. All right, let's get yeah. to that. That's an excellent. That's, that's why he's Andy Kane, the man, okay? <laughs> ben, enough of this nonsense about marijuana. Let's get down to brass tacks. All right, uh... Yes, indeed. Uh, so I can did not see anything remotely resembling a progressive tax 
uh, being drafted or proposed uh, by Mayor Lightfoot in yesterday's speech. The closest thing, I guess, was the uh, the transfer real estate, which is really not a progressive tax. I guess it is progressive. It could only be on uh, property over a billion dollars. All right, let's put that aside. Other than that, what uh, what no, what solutions do you think, in terms of progressive taxes, would you like to hear as members of various uh, transition task forces that Lori put out? What whoa, uh, what 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 kind of progressive taxes would you like to see? I don't care who takes the question first. Any one of you. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to cut a, a little bit of slack in the sense that I think. My read on that speech being light on details and and big picture and broad strokes was, look, we're about to kick off this budget town hall series. We want to hear your all's ideas. It would be problematic if she started with a fully baked budget and then said, oh, now we're going to have you give us ideas. So I I give that caveat to say, yeah, I didn't hear any progressive um, revenue ideas, but my hope is that we all will bring some of those to these town halls and then influence changing, right? right. Um, so I'm gonna start with that as a frame and then I'm gonna give a whole bunch of ideas. So vacancy tax, one of my favorite taxes, um, really gets that, so, so, so I think at base, right, you gotta start with who are you trying to tax? What kind of behavior do you really wanna be curbing? And how do you do that? So when you start thinking about the city of Chicago, and let's, let's start with who's been prospering under the past regime and who needs to actually be sharing some of that prosperity. That's how taxes are supposed to be applied. Like we're doing well, let's redistribute some of these funds to ensure that we all are being lifted up. So if you look at that, right, landlords um, are definitely uh, a sector that I would like to think about. And I'm not talking about our mom and pop landlords who are barely skating by, right? I'm talking about these folks who are actually speculating um, in neighborhoods of Chicago. They're speculating because, and I live in a, in a part of Chicago where there's been like a weird number of investments, but then also there's these vacant lots. And I've called my alderman and said, hey, there's a vacant lots and you know there's broken glass all the time. Our neighborhood neighbors are getting together to clean up glass, but there are these landlords with these vacant lots who don't clean up the glass and and can we get them to do their sidewalk maintenance the way I have to do sidewalk maintenance for my block, right? Um, and the answer I've always gotten is like, uh, call 311. What is 311 <laughs> gonna do about that, right? Like that that's yeah. not the answer. So um, a vacancy tax at base is to say, look, if you're the type of landlord who is in an area that is doing well, you're speculating, you're sitting on that. You are, um, there is enough interest to come in and to actually uh, rent that, but you're choosing not to rent it, right? Because you're waiting for the pricing to go up, um, that that would be actually something that we tax you on. So in other words, how would the tax work? I'd just make sure I understand it, because how would a vacancy tax work? There's a lot of ways to do it, Ben, but uh, basically after a certain X period of time, uh, if you haven't uh, put that, uh, gotten a tenant, right, that, that is paying rent and paying taxes and generating revenue for that neighborhood, uh, then you are paying a, a per- percentage of, you know, it can be calculated a lot of different ways, but you're paying a tax, right, mm-hmm. to create an incentive for you to actually do something with that property, right? Uh, because otherwise, uh, to Nikita's point, there's no tax revenue coming from that. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, that would be interesting. We could try to charge a vacancy tax on Donald Trump for the vacant <laughs> commercial pro- uh, property uh, in his building. Oh, exactly. Yeah. That is exactly the the spirit of the vacancy. I mean, in, in our neighborhoods, and um, and there are t- two South Side neighborhoods in particular I would lift up. So in Inglewood, right, where you say, you know, the vacancy tax, well, it's a lot different because the vacancy is no longer a physical structure. So, like, this all has context and it's not like a long time ago like this just started in 89 right right and so if you come physically over on the south side and the west side of chicago like it's gone (laughs) so that's these vacant lots these huge swaps so i'm in inglewood there's 730 acres of vacant lots in one neighborhood right the most in the city maybe next to to austin but essentially what happened is that they got demolished Right, the city had the trouble building initiative. But on the commercial districts, right? So this goes back to white flight. So when whites took the flight out of the south side and west side of Chicago, right, and moved to suburban areas, you know, that was underfund that was, you know, funded by the federal government, right? Through the GI Bill, through, you know, highway, you know, the expansion, um, 
loans <laughs> to families to make that jump, right? Um, they didn't necessarily leave ownership of the commercial districts. So they've been sitting on properties that have been passed down their children in places you're like, how do they even own something here, mm-hmm. right? So if you come to some of these communities that are 98% black and you're like, well, why don't you see more businesses here? But it goes into the structure of like, well, who's, who owns them, right? And then you say, well, okay, you want to open up a shop there. And it's like, if you don't have a reasonable person there, they want to charge you something astronomical to like do business on like a 60 to like, what's like, and I'm not providing you any other protections. So it's all favored in, in their benefit. And, you know, their argument would be, it's like, you know, they're paying taxes. Mm-hmm. They're being a productive part of the, you know, taxing body. But they're also causing like why we can't get, you know, their big problem in South Shore, why we cannot like, you know, further get the kind of density that you want for a business like, oh, you got these three. And then this whole swath is owned by so-and-so. Mm-hmm. All right. And so the, I think the vacancy tax would get gets at some of that, like would be the impetus, just like we were talking about earlier with the uh, <laughs> with the uh, malpractice <laughs> insurance is like it becomes like, OK, I don't want to incur this extra cost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think I better work with, and then it would, you know, because all they're doing, a lot of the speculators is just buying low so they can sell high. Right. And they're and, sitting and waiting. And they're sitting and waiting. And, wait, you know, and some of these communities are still desirable in terms of their location. I can get from South Shore to downtown in 15 minutes. All right. So this vacancy tax could be imposed by the city council and the mayor, correct? We would not need a state law for this. All right. All right. What other uh, forms of progressive taxes would you I mean, like? The corporate headcount tax has been around in, uh, for a while, right? Bringing it back. Um, I know the mayor said that they didn't want to drive out business, but you could make it a, uh, you could put a sunset on it, right? And say, hey, you know, talk to the, your corporate citizens, uh, you know, supporters of the mayor and say, we're going to put this in place for X number of years uh, and then it'll sunset, right? And uh, you can calibrate it kind of cleverly that um, it doesn't exceed the cost of uh, what it would take for that corporate headquarters to relocate, right? That Especially if they're of a certain size, that's going to take time. That takes a lot of resources to move uh, all your employees. And, you know, um, they they may find it mildly annoying. But uh, if, uh, again, if they consider themselves part of Chicago and then we want to be part of that solution, I think the mayor could, you know, find the savvy to, to make it happen. Mm, all right, get it. Get, well, you guys are on a roll. Give me another one. Polluters tax. A polluters tax to really focus on, okay, I mean, we have environmental justice issues. I'm not the expert on that. I'm going to look at you, Anton. But, uh, you know, when you look at the health impacts that our communities are facing, when you look at the ways in which we let that go unregulated. That's really problematic to me. So I'm going to give a shout out to um, El Viejo Little Village Environmental Justice Organization. They've been working really hard at um, trying to address the fact that, you know, we've got these, uh, we've got a, a coal plant that's trying to be translated into a warehouse, right, for shipping. Um, there's no regulation that's going on over there for uh, the air quality. And, you know, the city, the city's response on that, CDPH's response on that was um, keep your kids indoors. So thinking about not only like what is that saying in terms of social policy, uh, in terms of, you know, your government saying that you matter and you're valued. um, But there's also in those sorts of environments where we're seeing kind of this reductionist. So this is my bigger issue. We're giving away things as if they have no value. Whether it's, and mostly on the south side and the west side, right? We give away whether it's, yeah, 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 just turn that into a warehouse. It's just a coal plant. It's not doing anything. Doesn't matter. We're not going to regulate you because we don't want to scare. We don't want to scare off the developer, right? And so we give up the opportunity to tax and to share in that prosperity that the developer sees. Um, And the same thing's happening with this casino thing, right? Let's change the formula to give them more because otherwise they won't come in. Like this is the same concept and we, we negotiate against ourselves. So I would love to see the mayor actually embrace um, a deeper belief in Chicago's assets a deeper true valuation of what we bring to the table. The city of Chicago is no small game. For folks to work in the city of Chicago, to develop in the city of Chicago, to run industry and corporate America in the city of Chicago, they're not going to give that up just because of a taxation at, at, a, at a low enough level, right? Um, 
you would have to tax pretty damn high to scare folks out of the city that, you know, uh, is at the intersection of the Midwest and the coastal um, environment of this of this country. It, it, I feel like what we failed to do is we failed to truly value the asset under our our feet. And as a result of that, we then go back to the people and say, you got to pay for it. I, I agree with what you, the, the gist of what you said. Just uh, so how would a polluter tax exactly work? I mean, what's the, do you know the mechanism under which it would work? So in California, the way it had been done is, you know, there's sort of this idea that you, you actually quantify, um, and this is where I'm going to need you. To well, I mean, it's, I'll just give a, I think an easy example is yeah. like the plastic bag tax. Mm-hmm. So like that is an example of, you know, you're trying to, you know, remove some of these bags that don't disintegrate for, I don't know, a lifetime. Yes. Right. So it becomes, you know, cost prohibitive for, you know, people. I mean, even though it's only seven cent, it'll go up soon. But I mean, that's the notion of like a polluter's tax is the same kind of framework. So if you're buying, you know, well, you can do it in a lot of different ways for, you know, cars, the emission. So Mm -hmm. there's been. Yeah. Yeah, um, the Hummer tax. <laughs> yeah, but you could do it for, especially in a city like Chicago, because of our manufacturing, right? You you really are taking a look at the um, uh, carbon emissions of that particular industry, and you start taxing on that. So if they move, they can make choices on the ways that they want to do things. They could try to, you know, make healthier choices for our planet. Um, likely they won't, because frankly, the the changing the infrastructure is pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so then let's capture that and, and put it back into our city services to offset the cost that they're generating for us. Um, so it can be done based on, you know, what's your um, what's your actual carbon footprint? All right. Uh, I, I could just see the opposition being waged already by people say, and they would somehow turn it other there. This tax is hurting the people of Englewood. I, I'll hear that argument already. I remember when the soda pop tax came out, that was turned into uh, this grand revolution, rebellion on the part that uh, uh, was engineered by Big Soda on, on behalf of the little people who wanted to buy soda. So I could just see these things all getting uh, the political jujitsu of it all being twisted around. And, and I think you have to point out, so I think that there's fundamentally that it's not a one-size-fits-all, too. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm creating tax policy. I think this is important in order to get other people at the table because that is, when we're talking about progressive taxes, you know, a tax on the wealthy, right? <laughs> These different measures in which you're taxing the wealthy. But then how you're describing wealth. So, and then it, I think also for those who... Like it was in a debate recently of people who are just now acquiring some wealth. They're like, well, damn. <laughs> <laughs> I just got yeah. here. How much yeah. did it cost? Yeah. You know what I mean? So they, they you know, fundamentally. And, and then linking that then to the fact that I'm going to pay you more money yeah. Yeah, that yeah. you don't know how to manage right. is disturbing yes. to people. Right? So in that way, the progressive taxing often falls in this in this gray area because it's like, wait a minute, you want me to give you more money? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that, for the collective imagination, sometimes that's like not woven yeah. together. I mean, that's why that's I think, uh, you know, some of the remaining ideas, luxury services tax, uh, even uh, income tax on high earners, if you're gonna do that, and I know I'm about to open a can of worms here, here for go. some of these folks, I think even for those individuals, they're gonna say, well, what about these big developers getting these handouts, right? All for right. Th- for yeah. things that they're gonna be doing anyway. All right, right. well, let's get to that. Uh, and very much unmentioned uh, in Lori Lightfoot's address yesterday was the TIF program. Un- I knew it would be unmentioned. It was unmentioned, if I may say, uh, in every article uh, by the mainstream press leading up to it, uh, to the speech. It's, it's an amazing thing, uh, the TIF program. It just keeps moving along. Eight hundred million dollars or so last year. I'm tra- or this year. I'm trying to. Th- I'm off the top of my head. Eight hundred forty-one million. I want to say it was collected off it, and yet we act like it didn't exist. Uh, in the debate over the one point three billion that was handed out for Lincoln Yards, not once, not once, did any alderman get up and talk about the uh, tax hike. This means by freezing property, you're freezing property in the most valuable corner of the city from increases in taxation. That's what you're doing, folks. And so that means you have to raise the property tax rate on everybody else in order to raise the money to 
pay for this. Now, when I'm, my brothers and sisters in the progressive community that have stood with me on this TIF fight, I love every single one of them, but they never talk about the tax implications. Uh, that's not their thing. Do you understand what I'm telling you? And you don't hear it at all from the Northwest and the Southwest sides where they supposedly are so vigilant about property taxes, never going to pay one nickel in property taxes ever. And Lori Lightfoot didn't mention it. It's so bizarre. It's like this transparent tax on the people of the city of Chicago that they just willingly pay because they don't realize they're paying it. So part of me thinks just tiff the whole city. Let's just tiff the whole city and just create a slush fund of like $10 billion just from all this extra property taxes that the suckers and saps of the city of Chicago are paying because they don't realize they're paying it and their aldermen pretend they're not paying it and their mayor pretends we're not paying it. Let's just do it. And that will solve all our budget obligations. Andy Kang, what do you think of my proposal? Uh, no thanks, Ben. Uh, you know, I'd be, I'd, I'd maybe flip the other way, and I'd be open to a world where we didn't have tips at all. Oh, I argue that point for twenty um, years have got me nowhere. But you know, I think there's um, to, to Lincoln Yard's point. Uh, there's a real opportunity here with this lawsuit, and I know um, you've had Amisha on this show before, and the Grassroots Collaborative, along with Raise Your Hand. Um, I think they're represented by Chicago Lawyers Committee. This is a legit lawsuit that they're bringing. And I think- um, Mayor Lightfoot's fighting it tooth and nail. Yeah, and the mayor's office is. I, I think that um, raises a lot of questions about what's going on there because uh, from my perspective, go back to the Lincoln Yards folks and say, hey, look, when we uh, cut that deal uh, before they, uh, the mayor was sworn in uh, around minority contracting, that was all predicated on the assumption that this was legal. Right uh, now, looking at it with this lawsuit, there's a real question. Not blighted, but for test the you know uh, claim around racial discrimination. Right, Lincoln Yards being uh, predominantly white area. Right, on, uh, very adjacent to an affluent area. Uh, I think it raises a lot of serious issues. And I, I, if I was the mayor, I'd, I'd maybe at the very least go back to the Lincoln Yards folks and say, hey, wait a second. You know, that w the, the facts that we had when we negotiated, uh, these are different facts, right? Uh, and I know, Nikita, you feel pretty strongly about this one, too. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's two things here, right? So if we're talking about taxation, we're talking about the budget, we're talking about how are we going to fill this uh, deficit we have. Um, one is, yeah, we, we do need to raise money differently. Um, I think it's not just raising more money. It's actually raising money differently by being more progressive in our structures. Um, but we do, at the same time, need to clean up the corruption. And to me, this is a perfect example of corruption, right? The TIF system has allowed unfettered ability for the fifth floor to direct funds in ways that have been fairly unaccountable. Um, so unaccountable, right, that, like, you still have to go and access PDF files uh, on the city of Chicago's website to even see where things are going. You can't even search that database, right? Um, I think City Bureau has has done it or is working on it to, to make it accessible to folks, but that's the level. You know, you, listen, if somebody had to put something in a PDF document because they don't want you to search it, you know there's something in there we need to be searching. Um, <laughs> yeah. But at base, this is why, so Chicago United for Equity has been working on setting up a racial equity impact assessment process, this REIA process. We heard about this all over the blueprints for the transition team in pretty much every subject area. Hey, we should be doing it. Um, cool. So. We actually led the racial equity impact assessment process for National Teachers Academy, where I'm on the local school council. Um, we worked with the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, filed a racial discrimination lawsuit, and won um, the first time in the country that we stopped a school closure on the grounds of racial discrimination. Um, and it was really because of that process, because the process was able to, A, bring people to the table uh, from all over the city to say, okay, what's really going on here? And to be able to describe point by point where and why there's a disparate impact Right? Why are people being impacted in different ways? And oh, by the way, you had other opportunities to pursue what you were seeking without creating this disparate impact, and you didn't. So that shows the kind of, um, it doesn't necessarily show you intentionally wanted to create harm, but it shows that you had uh, other options and you didn't pursue them. And so we're launching this REIA process, and we're inviting people from all over the city to get involved and to come to these open community forums to sing, you know, to, to, to bring whatever concerns they have about TIF. And it's actually 
actually it's both education and negotiation and you're not going to just sit and come up with your own solution it's a civic process you got to negotiate with your neighbors right um but the point of it is to say we know that the TIF system is not working the way it should be. Let's actually talk about why it's not working the way it should be. What would you want to see it do? And let's figure out if there's a way to make the TIF system do that. And if there isn't, then what would you propose as an alternative? So we're actually starting by looking at Lincoln Yards and the 78. Um, but the recommendations that will come out of this, um, we expect that the people of Chicago will voice some concerns about the TIF mechanism at whole. Um, and then that's going be totally written up you know with the hundreds of people that'll be involved in that written up into a full document submitted to the mayor's office um and then you know that's when we really get to some advocacy work on so how are we gonna implement those recommendations i mean many ways thinking about these two mega developments in particular it's basically rom's parking meter deal right and so uh it's his parting gift uh to the city and i think we do have a chance here to, to push it on pause at least and then maybe uh, mitigate some of the damage. Mm -hmm. uh, any closing thoughts you want to add? Because we're uh, Run, out of time. We're out of, well, yeah, um, later for Lincoln Yards, I mean, it's all the way thumbs down for me. I mean, even though it's on the other side of town. But I think it gets at this um, really um, the point around context around, you know, TIFs really being first created to be another mechanism to help fund schools at the time. It was around, you know, when Harold uh, got the first district was really to, you know, redevelop that block. Uh, what is it? What was it called? Block 38? Block mm. 37. That, 37. Block 37, right. Um, but then I expanded under Mayor Daly and it became like this private. And then you brought in private managers as well. Um, who then also use so th this begins the the privatization and so I, I think at the core what we're saying is there are different philosophies yeah. right that have been driving how you run city government and they have been the dominant narrative that we're you know given alternatives to right but it's these are like alternative there needs to be a whole nother framework in which and I think that's where the conundrum is with um, Mayor Lightfoot is that she's dealing with like there is another way to try, but you would have to tell certain people no, right? And those are the people who usually have a lot of money, and they've made their money, though, because the government has been subsidizing them. And so that's the part that they don't really talk about. Like, these guys didn't just get rich. It's just like <laughs> this whole abstraction of like, oh, well, you know, we worked really hard. It's like, no, government helps people get rich. It helps industry grow. So, I mean, that's the purpose of it, right? Uh, and that's, you know, well, one of the purposes, quote unquote, in our system. So I think as we start to think about, you know, um, her first 100 days, where she needs to go, um, it is going to be a challenge. I mean, I think that she has great intention. I think that's the big difference that I think people see, even though, like I said, I didn't vote for it, but after meeting with her and working, I think she really wants to get at like the fact that there's these things that have happened in our city that she needs to reconcile. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's going to be her big challenge in her next 100 days. Um, and our jobs are to make sure that we're, you know, helping her think through that and also prodding her when we think like, you know, hey, don't go down that road. You know what I mean? <laughs> don't do that. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't go down that road. That sounds like a column I've been writing for the last 30 years. Anyway, I thank one and all for being here. I think we may have shattered the record for most time spent on an individual uh, topic, but it's a very worthwhile one. And we may have to continue this conversation, uh, bring everybody back in the next 100 days. All right. All right. All right. Very good, everybody. <laughs> this is Ben Jarofsky, and this is the end of another Ben Jarofsky bonus. Take care, everybody.